Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. See, from a Vedantic perspective, this whole idea of karma and samsara, it proceeds like this. That we are not aware of our infinite nature. This not being aware of our infinite nature, our divine nature, this is called ignorance. Not being aware of this infinitude, this completion, this purnatva, this ignorance, it makes us feel incomplete. We automatically feel incomplete. And therefore we reach out into the world, into what appears to us, to complete ourselves. Actually nothing in the world can complete us, nor do we need to reach out into the world. But we reach out into the world to complete ourselves, and this reaching out is karma. We do something for fulfillment. And as we do something, the results, we set in motion this, this law of karma, cause and effect. We do things, good and bad, and it leads to results, good and bad. And once the results are there, once, once we have got stocked up our karma, it is not exhausted in one lifetime. It will lead to other lifetimes. And as we get the results of our past karmas in other lives, we are constantly accumulating new karma, which leads to further lives. And depending on the mixture of karma, good or bad, our lives are pleasant and unpleasant, usually a mixture of both. So human life is conceived of as being a mixture of the pleasurable and the, uh, and the miserable, uh, sukha and dukkha. There are conceivably higher lives, higher in the sense, much more pleasant lives. So th those are the various heavens which spoke, uh, spoken about in Hinduism. There are lives which are much more miserable. There are the various hells spoken about in Hinduism. And none of these are eternal. You don't go to an eternal... Uh, these, these heavens and hells are not eternal heaven or hell. You go there, the results of past karma are upon us. We enjoy or suffer, as the case may be. And once those effects are gone, we are back to a kind of mixed existence, which is this life. So this is called samsara. And it goes on. Um, and this is not good news. <laughs> the good news in one sense is that actually we don't die with the death of the body. We, we do exist. But that itself is not good news because it's prolonged. Then you get another body, another limited existence. If you've really struggled and been a good person, that next existence will be a better one than this. But that's also limited. That also comes to an end. And that's also intrinsically not satisfying. The best of all existence in um, this life, if you see, even that is not satisfying. If you conceive of it, I was just thinking about, I mentioned it last year, before I set out on my summer tour, two Tragic events occurred in Manhattan. 
You know, uh, the greatest chef, Anthony Bourdain, he committed suicide just a few weeks earlier or afterwards. This great uh, fashion designer, Kate Spade, she killed herself, both in Manhattan. Now, now think about it. The, the most happening place in the whole world, we're proud of being New Yorkers and Manhattanites. Or what do we call ourselves, Manhattanites? Or? And there, and there, the highest possible, a dream of success, the best possible life. You are at the top of your career, and not a boring career, not, a, not drudgery, creative. You are a chef or a fashion designer, and you are rich and successful, really, really successful, at the top of your feet. Famous, and I guess reasonably healthy. Um, then why would you kill yourself? Clearly, there was some unhappiness in each case, and it's not limited to those people. It's, it's, I'm saying, giving those examples as they would be on paper, at least per, what you what might call realistically expected, perfect life, perfect life. And yet, it shows that also can be infected with such deep unhappiness and misery that one might want to kill oneself. So, all of this life is infected with a kind of dissatisfaction. So one seeks to attain real, deep, lasting peace and satisfaction. We have been trying all our lives without success. Without success. We try in everything, in, in wealth and physical health and fame and you know, building organizations, uh, getting degrees, uh, in all sorts of ways we try in this world to attain some kind of happiness. And we have been trying, each one of us in our own way, until today, for the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of our life. And clearly, we can't honestly say that, yes, I've got it. There's, I have got that which the Gita says, by attaining that, nothing greater remains to be attained. By being established in which, even the heaviest of sorrows cannot shake one. Have I got that? The religion claims, spirituality claims, such a thing is possible. That is the claim of spirituality. That it is the, definitely the desire of our hearts. There's no doubt about it. Nobody doubts it. We may settle for less. We may think, I am very wise and I become mature and I realize the world is like this. Although there is no permanent happiness, there is no deep happiness. It's mostly horrible. And have to sort of blunder through this world somehow, make the best of it. Many people sort of think that way. But even those who think that way, if they are offered realistically, there is a chance that you might actually attain deep, lasting peace. You might actually overcome suffering. They would jump at it. Of course, who would not? So this is what spirituality offers. Now, karma yoga is um, part of this how do you deal with the problem of karma? Shankaracharya has this equation, avidya kama karma. The whole problem of life is this, according to Shankaracharya. Ignorance, avidya, leading to desire and leading to karma. In this link, there's a lot packed in there. Ignorance of what, you one might ask. You know, ignorance of what? Our actual nature. 
that we are Brahman, that we are the unlimited, we are ever fulfilled. We don't know that, we don't feel it. That ignorance, how does it become converted into desire? Because I feel unsatisfied. I feel the need of so many things. The moment I think that I am the, I do not know my real nature, what am I presented with? When I see the mind and the body. That's my first, first experience when I wake up in the morning. What do I experience? My own thoughts, my own personality. Then I experience this body. And through this body I experience the room and, and the life waiting out there. And that the whole thing is limited and somehow there are things to be done. There is unhappiness to be avoided. There is some kind of little pleasure to be um, attained in this world. So that is calm or desire. And when I'm up and about, I jump out of bed or struggle out of bed. Uh, and then karma starts, work starts. And that work leads to results. That work leads to results. It's birth and rebirth. We call it rebirth. Not immediately. The moment you wake up, you're not born into a new body. It's as we go on doing work, this body ages and dies. But the subtle body, sukshma sharira, you the self with your mind and the subtle body, we'll talk about that, that goes on to other lives and your karma chases you. That account, I think that's why it's called Chase Manhattan. So <laughs> it, it follows you around. And it generates a new body. Not entirely um, undesirable because if I say I have done so much good, I have not got the reward for that. Wait, here's the reward coming. Here is a body, here is a world for you, go out there. But the other side is also there. I've done so much bad and luckily I've escaped the punishment, I died. No, you didn't. <laughs> it's going to follow you around. Here is a body and here is a horrible world waiting for you, go out and suffer. <laughs> so... This is karma. And this continues, this cycle continues. And the whole thing is ultimately unsatisfactory. So if you want out of this, if you want freedom from this limited existence, that is called moksha. Moksha means uh, liberation, freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from this. In a simplified form, this is the bigger word picture, simplified form, freedom from suffering. When you say freedom from the cycle of birth and death, somebody might object. I don't believe in a cycle of birth and death. Um, somebody from the Abrahamic religion might say that I believe in only one life. Or somebody who is an agnostic, uh, who is not, does not believe in these things. I know only this life. I don't know my past lives. I don't know if I will have future lives. So are you selling me a solution for a problem which doesn't exist? Yeah. Man who was arrested and brought before the magistrate for selling real solutions to imaginary diseases and imaginary solutions to real diseases. <laughs> it was an actual case in the old Wild West. He was locked up for that. So are you doing that? No. Even if you forget all of this, there is suffering in this life, nobody can deny. There is unhappiness, there are problems in this life. Is there any deep solution for that problem? And religion and spirituality promise that there is a deep solution for that problem. We can actually overcome suffering. Even here, there is something to understand. Um, it was the philosopher Arindam Chakravarti who pointed this out. He quoted from the Buddha. Buddha said the nature of suffering is like this. Two arrows. A man hit by two arrows. And how much suffering is there? One arrow, it's suffering. And second arrow, even more suffering. 
Now, what are the two arrows? The first arrow is what the world throws at you. There are calamities outside. There are little personal tragedies in life. There is one's people around you who might be a source of suffering. One's own body is a source of suffering. And ultimately, all suffering comes in, into, into our minds. So this is the thing which the world throws at me. First arrow. And the second arrow is the suffering that we have inside as a reaction to that. Remember the two distinct things. Many of you are doctors. You've seen patients who are suffering, but different patients react in different ways. The first arrow is common to all of them. The second arrow is different from, for each of them. And the real suffering is due to the second arrow. The reaction that is in the mind. Oh, I am I'm lost. I am so unhappy. It's so terrible. It's so horrible. That is the second arrow. That really causes unhappiness. The unhappiness present in our minds. Now the Buddha said, spirituality, what can spirituality do? It cannot remove the first arrow. It cannot remove the first arrow. Sri Ramakrishna, for all his samadhi and visions of the Divine Mother, did he or did he not die of cancer? He died of cancer. Jesus Christ was pinned to that cross. And the physical body at least died. So there was suffering. And there is death. All of that is the first arrow and it, it continues. It continues. Even after you are, if you are enlightened, that first arrow will still be there. If you are not enlightened, the first arrow will still be there. But what enlightenment does, what spirituality does, any kind of spirituality, this is a very deep insight by the Buddha. He says it removes the second arrow. And our real suffering is the second arrow. Our real suffering is internal suffering. It's not the happenings of the world or even the body. Notice how Sri Ramakrishna while dying of cancer, throat cancer, which continued and the body died. But when Hari Maharaj asks him, are you suffering? And he says, first reaction, yes, there is pain here and I cannot eat. First arrow. Second, when Hari Maharaj says to him, Hari, the young man who later became Swami Turiyananda, says to him, but sir, I see that you are in great bliss. Strange thing to say. I see that you are in great bliss. What did Sri Ramakrishna say? Oh, the rascal has found me out. He, he laughs. That is not a typical reaction of a dying cancer patient, terminally ill can cancer patient. How does he laugh? Because the second arrow has been removed by something he has found. He may call it the Divine Mother Kali or the Atman, uh, whatever it is. So that's what, what this whole Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Raja Yoga, Jnana Yoga all aims at removing the second arrow. Remember, not the first one. I was in Arizona State University um, in July and they were organizing a seminar with Mayo Clinic. So it was on mindfulness as therapy. So mindfulness, Buddhist mindfulness. Now I said, see, the Mayo Clinic is, in, is engaged in removing the first arrow, curing the disease, managing the suffering and all, the physical problem. And yet you have come to the feeling that it is actually not removing most of the suffering of the patient. In fact, the process of treatment can add to it, can give some second, third, fourth arrow also. <laughs> How do you remove the inner suffering of the patient? So, along with the treatment, you're trying to remove the first arrow. That's, that's important, that you have to do it. That's what science, technology, medicine, all of that does. 
And the second arrow is uh, removed by, that's why you're bought in mindfulness. You're thinking about mindfulness. If you combine both, that's a holistic approach to human welfare. First arrow, who will remove? Doctor will remove. Lawyer will remove, maybe. <laughs> the police will remove. Uh, the, um, the disaster prevent, prevention people or the, the relief people, they will remove. All the problems, the people who provide services, all the technology we have in the world, all is dealing with the first arrow. And that's important. And the second one is spirituality. Now, there's a lot to be discussed. I will not go into all of that. Let me go straight into the most important thing while we have time. We've got time until 12. So let me go into the discussion of um, the practical aspect. How do you practice Karma Yoga? What do you do in Karma Yoga? So there are these four approaches to Karma Yoga. Let me just speak about them briefly. Four approaches to Karma Yoga. Let me write them down. This you may take as the core teaching about Karma Yoga, the core teaching about Karma Yoga. Yesterday's class and today's class together. Four approaches. How does one do karma yoga? Primarily two things, work as a witness, work uh, for God. This is based on jnana, knowledge. This is based on bhakti, devotion. And these two additional approaches Swami Bhajananji has mentioned in his book, so I have added it. So what are these four approaches? And one may choose any one of them, or depending on your mood, whichever. Um, So what are these ones? First is the jnana approach. The jnana approach is that um, one may work as the witness. Notice that everything is done by nature and I am the conscious witness thereof. Work goes on. 
The body is working, mind is working, and I am the conscious witness of the working body and mind. Witness does not mean I will sit quietly. Um, Shankaracharya comments on the, uh, the Gita verse, the one who sees action in inaction, and inaction in action, that one is the wise one, and that one is the doer of all action. Karmanya karmaya pashyet, akarmani chakarmaya, sa buddhiman manushyeshu, sa yukta sa kritsna karmakrit. So, in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 4, 18th verse, a very interesting verse. You see, sometimes in the Gita, there are difficult verses. Suddenly you'll come across a difficult verse with paradoxical language. Um, one who wakes in the night time and sleeps in daytime, one who, uh, <laughs> that one is the yogi and so on. The one who sees work in no work and no work in work. And Sri Krishna builds up to it. When he's explaining karma to Arjuna, he says there is something to be understood about karma. There's something to be understood about no karma, akarma. And one might think, what is there to be understood about karma? And what is there to be understood about no work, work and no work? When you do something, that's work. When you don't do something, that's no work. And Sri Krishna then hits you with this paradoxical statement. Just the opposite. He says, the one who sees no work in work, and who sees work in no work, that one truly sees. Now that's a very strange thing to say. It sounds cool, very, very nice, very philosophical, very deep. But if you rationally analyze it, say, what kind of a silly statement is that? A wise person should see work as work. When you do something, that's work. When you don't do something, that's no work. And that's, that's common sense. But how is it doing no work is work and uh, doing uh, work is no work? How? So how, seeing work in no work, when the unwise person, when the ignorant person, when the unenlightened person says, I will give up work, I will give up karma, or because it's, see, it's being told to Arjuna who wanted to stop uh, doing his duty. I am going to go to the Himalayas and sit quietly. What are you doing? No work. But that is also work. Why? Because there is the doership is still there. Do you remember the five factors we talked about? It must be in a living body. There must be a sense of doership, agency. There must be a sense of enjoying or suffering. And there must be a sense of moral um, uh, obligation, including choice. If all those things are there, and then the cosmic result, all those things are there, then it is karma. Clearly it is karma. Now when I decide, I will not engage in work in the samsara, is it a choice or not? It's a choice. Is there agency involved in it? Yes. yes. Then that's also action. And that puts you in a much worse position. I, there is a duty clearly presented to me. I have chosen not to do it. Under, for, for what reason? Under the mistaken notion that by, do, by that I will be free of karma. That's also another karma you are doing. And, and as a, a serious violation of, of duty and morality also. So the wise person sees in the unwise person's decision to refrain from work, that is also work. That is also karma. Is this part clear? Yeah. Why is that karma? Because agency is there. For example, the statement, 
I am fasting. But what, is, what exactly are you doing there? You're not eating. So that should be no work. But we take it as work. It, it's lots of, a lot of hard work to fast. <laughs> a lot of agencies involved in not going and raiding the refrigerator. <laughs> it's a good practice. But it's a practice. Look at the word. It's a practice. No, eating is a work. But not eating is also work. Pro probably harder work than eating. So, the unwise person's decision to refrain from activity is also activity of a much worse kind. The wise person sees that. And the opposite, the wise person's activity is no activity at all. How? No sense of agency is there. Why? Because a wise person sees oneself as consciousness, not as a body-mind engaged in action. Consciousness is aware of the mind thinking, is aware of the senses engaged with the world, is aware of the hands working, the feet walking, is aware of all of that, but clearly sees that I am not doing it. A, de a devotee would say everything is being done by God's will. Ramericha story is there, the will of Rama. Or nature is doing everything. If, we d if the is a jnani is not in the path of devotion, will not want to talk about God, I am the witness of work being done. As I am the witness of a lot of activity in the world, I am the witness of the activity in the body and in the mind. There is actually a state in which one does not feel identified with body and mind. Though it's, so the, though the jnani, the enlightened one may do a lot of action, still can honestly say, I do nothing. But which I? Not body and mind. For the jnani it's very clear. There's the witness awareness which is obscured for us. But for that person, it's very clear. From that perspective, I do nothing. I do not suffer from throat cancer also. I don't have a throat. How can I have throat cancer? But the body has cancer or not? Yes. Is there pain produced in the body, physiologically speaking? Yes. Will the body die of cancer? Yes. What about you? No problem at all. So that is the one way of doing it, as a witness and all action may be engaged in. And Shankaracharya gives an example in the Bhagavad Gita commentary on that verse, which I really liked. I remember when I would cross the river Ganga and go to Belurmat on the boat. You know what the boatmen do? If there, there is a strong current in the river because of the tides, there's a strong current in the Ganga. So they're going to go to, to Belurmat from Kutighat in Baranagar on the other side. So the boatman, the Belurmat is directly opposite. You know what the, Belu, the boatman will do? He will aim the boat that way. Uh, because there is the low tide, water is flowing this way. So if you aim it diagonally, it will come this way. You're a pilot, so pilot knows that. If you have the strong crosswinds, uh, you know, you don't actually aim, aim for the uh, runway, you aim this way so that you're blown into the runway. Um, and so what happens is, when you go on the boat, you're actually moving diagonally to Belurmat, and suddenly you get the impression, you get, you get the uh, visual illusion. You are steady, and the monastery is moving, the trees are moving, the temples are moving. It's an illusion. Actually, the boat is moving, and diagonally like this. But you get the feeling the boat is still in the river, and the river bank, everything on the river bank is moving. Buildings and temples and, and uh, trees, they are all moving. So what? 
when i read shankaracharya's commentary on that verse 14th uh, 18th verse of chapter 4 chapter 4 action in inaction inaction in action he says just as a man crossing a river on a boat feels that the boat is not moving but the trees on the shore are moving similarly similarly is the state of the uh, agyani it is the body and mind and senses which are moving and changing presented to his unmoving consciousness but he feels i walk i talk i think i enjoy i suffer exactly like that that's why i really like that verse you know and the commentary is if you actually have that experience and then you see suddenly 1400 years ago shankaracharya is mentioning that very experience you begin to see what they are talking about i know this monk young monk who had suddenly had an experience he came on a train he had a long journey to banaras or somewhere he came back to our main monastery got down at the local train station and took a rickshaw a rickshaw to the monastery as he was going through the busy streets of belur the narrow lanes and the rickshaw it sort of charges down so in india there's no lanes to follow you make your own lane so that's the rule make your lane and the rickshaw is moving down suddenly he got the feeling for it's it's a, a tremendous feeling overtook him for just a few seconds he is not moving he is an ever present awareness in front of which the world is whirling one scene had come banaras and then the train and the station now the rickshaw and before that many other scenes of youth and childhood he has is always present he is not a person traveling through space he is not a person traveling through time time and space are whirling in front of him who is not in space nor in time do you get the sense of he actually experienced this he did he is in a rickshaw rushing through a narrow lane but he didn't feel that he felt i am the awareness in which these things are appearing so that that is a sort of intimation of of what an enlightened person sees karmanya karmaya pashyet akarmani cha karma action in inaction and inaction in action so that's the first attitude of the gyani who sees it as witness consciousness i am the witness consciousness and witness of all action truly speaking nature does everything everything in this body i say i am this body and i control this body no you do not every bit of action digestion of food circulation of blood um, the air being taken into the lungs and then um, pumped throughout the body everything is done by nature so vera means swami i raise my hand isn't this my decision no not really from your intention of raising the arm to the actual execution of the task so many things have taken place in the nervous system and the muscles one little stroke right side of the brain i'll raise my arm no chance physiotherapy you see unless nature cooperates with you nothing can be done in the body if nature today says all right you think you are so great you're going to run the body here are the keys you you drive now so many things um, circulatory system endocrine system digestive system uh, nervous system if you are in put in charge of all of that 
Uh, within 15 seconds, 911 called, ambulance has to rush, Star Lake. What happened? He tried to run his own body. <laughs> we don't. It's nature who's a very reliable co-pilot. And we are, the ego says, I am doing all this. So that is samsara. So nature actually does all of the activities uh, in this body. And I am the witness thereof. There's one shloka in the Gita which is repeated three times, which means this thing. Everything is done by nature, by the gunas of nature, sattva, rajas, tamas. And ahankara, vimudatma, the, the self, deluded by the ego, thinks, kattahamiti manyate, I am the doer. And then samsara starts. If you are the doer, you get the result. Prak yesterday I mentioned, 13 chapter says, prakrityeva karmani kriyamanani sarvasha. Nature alone does everything. But, uh, and, and the person who sees this, sees that the self is the non-doer. Again, in 18th chapter it is mentioned, the same insight, this first approach to karma yoga is mentioned three times in the Gita, the witness consciousness. Another approach, the second one, this one, work for the, work for God. This is a bhakti yoga based approach. Um, this one is the most common. If you ask what is the way that karma, action, karma yoga is done in the Ramakrishna order, how do you all do it? Most of us, almost all of us, I think we do it this way. We say this work belongs to Sri Ramakrishna. This ashram belongs to Sri Ramakrishna. And Sri Ramakrishna has given us this work and I have an opportunity to serve Sri Ramakrishna through this work. This is my Lord's universe. Whichever view you put it my Christ, my Krishna, my Ramakrishna, whatever in form you understand God. And God, it's God's universe. Everybody in this and everything in this universe belongs to God. And I am here to serve. So through my actions, I am worshipping God. I see my Gopala, the baby Krishna, in everybody who comes to me. And as they need in whichever form I can, I serve them. This is my worship of God. So all my action is transformed into worship. I've get, told you the story of how in that Lucknow airport once, a security guard asked me, uh, please tell us something. As actually, um, I was going to the airport and I was the only passenger, transit passenger. And they, uh, they frisk you there. They make you stand on top of a box. And then they... So they, I was the only one there wearing a dress, this dress. And so the security guard there said, give us a talk. And he said, now? Yes, tell us something. And then he called everybody else. They had no, they had no work anyway. It was a, so all these people, there with guns and everything, both men and women, policemen, policewomen, they're standing around me listening for the talk, waiting for the talk. I thought, what do I tell them? And they made me stand on the box <laughs> to give a talk. And then I told him this. That, remember, it was Lucknow, it's, uh, Uttar Pradesh. So I said, do you do puja before you leave your house? And the gentleman said, yes. Hanumanji ko phool chalate hain. I put flowers at the feet of Lord Hanuman before I leave house, leave the house for my job. And I said, when as each person files past you throughout the day, you check the person, do your job efficiently, politely, and mentally put one more flower at the feet of Lord Hanuman. Each person. And he was so happy with that. He was a delighted smile, a simple man. He delighted smile. He said, Wah, din bhar Hanumanji ka puja. 
Whole day I'll be worshipping God. Yes, your whole life is transformed into a worship of God. Try it. Don't tell people. If you tell your kids, now I'm going to worship God in you, they'll take advantage of you. <laughs> Remember, I'm God. <laughs> I remember when I was put in charge of a, a hostel, like a dorm, with uh, little kids. They're all 10-year-olds. And I was taken aback. And I was a new brahmachari. I thought if I had gotten married, I would have got one or two kids. Now there are 40 kids. And none of them, they, they realized me as, what do you call it, a soft touch or something? <laughs> so they knew that I can't be very strict. So the dorm which I was in charge of was the most disorganized, uh, disorganized uh, riotous dorm throughout. And there used to be prizes given at the um, end of each month for the neatest, well, most disciplined, uh, well-organized dorm. And we would always be last. And one day, one, after one of these disappointing events, we were sitting there, and, and the students were, they would commiserate with me. And the, one of the little, I still remember, he said, um, uh, in Hindi, you know, he said, Maharaj ji, jane dije, let it be Swami, let it be Maharaj, Barmacha. See, after all, think about it this way. All the other dorms, you know, um, they cry 29 days a month and laugh on the last day. And we laugh 29 days a month and <laughs> cry, cry on one day. <laughs> so we are very happy. So, but the powers that be, the senior swamis were not at all happy with my dorm. And I, I got a lot of scoldings because of the poor performance of the dorm. So I thought I would shame the kids into uh, doing their work. Um, the kids were tough customers. Yeah, they have to, and it's hard. You have to get up early in the morning and sweep the dorm and things like that. So I would wake them up at, at 6 o'clock and, and the guy is still, little kid, he's still in, in bed with his face buried in the pillow. I said, it's your duty, aren't you going to sweep the dorm? And he'd look up at me with disgust and he had a broomstick under the bed. You know, he would reach under the bed while lying on the bed and he would take out the broomstick and sweep like this <laughs> and put it back inside. And he would look at me, ho gaya na, bas. <laughs> So one day I decided I'm going to shame these fellows. So I took out the broomstick and I started in front of them, sweeping the dorm. They looked at me puzzled. What is the Maharaj doing? Then one of the kids, and he's, he's, like, he's a very big doctor now, so I shouldn't take his name. <laughs> he's a little kid at that time. He called everybody else. Hey, come, come, come and see. And then they burst into spontaneous applause. This is the kind of dorm warden we want. <laughs> who does all our work for us. <laughs> no. But the idea is, externally you're doing the same work, whether it is administering a dorm or looking after a school or college or office. But internally, you have this feeling that God alone exists in all of these beings. And I do. Swami Vivekananda's philosophy was that. My God the poor, my God the hungry, my God the ill, my God the wicked, he said. And how do you serve them? Through education, through food, through medicine and treatment, through a kind word. Go out of your way to be helpful and nice to people. So that is worship of God in all beings. Convert your work into, God, into worship. 
Swami Vivekananda said, never approach anything except as God. Never approach anything except as God. A very powerful formula. People in your life, work in your life, events in your life. Never approach anything except as God. So this is not very difficult to do. These two approaches, though we are calling them Karma Yoga, one is based on Jnana Yoga and the one based on Bhakti Yoga. In fact, Bhajananji Maharaj has gotten a quotation from a great monk of our order, Swami Madhavanandaji, who was the president of the order a long time ago, of course, long before I, I mean, I never, I met some of his disciples, but I've never met him. So about this form, Swami Madhavanji writes, I consider that the way Swami Vivekananda has advised us to worship God in man or to worship man as God is Bhakti Yoga. It's actually work, but based on bhakti, it's bhakti yoga. As soon as you have the idea of worship, it no longer remains confined to the sphere of karma. Not even karma yoga. We can call it bhakti yoga. So this is a kind of bhakti yoga actually. Similarly, this is also a kind of jnana yoga, this first one. As a, 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 apart from these two, Swami Bhajananji mentions two other approaches to karma yoga the path of surrender, this is advanced. This is a concept taken from, this Sanskrit word is prapatti, it's a concept taken from Vishishtadvaita, Sri Vaishnava, um, which is popular in the south of India. A lot of, there's a huge community. So one of the most advanced practices of bhakti in that path, bhakti means devotion to God, in that path is called prapatti. Prapatti means total surrender. Remember, who can do this? This is a person who actually, you might say, is not concerned with the work. Doing the work, but not concerned with the work anymore. Is concerned only with God. These two can be put, Sri Ramakrishna put it in a very simple way. He said, these two, about talking about these two, hold on to God with one hand and, do, and do, work with, do the work with the other hand. With your right hand, hold on to the feet of the Lord and with your left hand, do the work in the world. Once the work in the world is finished, hold on to the Lord with both hands. Our problem is, moment the world calls our attention, we hold on to the world with both hands. And then it bites us. <laughs> then we suffer. He says, no, first hold on to God, and then when the world asks for your attention, do the work, and then immediately come back. That itself is difficult. We tend to forget. And there are practical hints, like Swami Brahmananda said, Somebody said, I forget God in the day-to-day -day work. So before beginning any work, anything, you want to drive from here to there, before beginning, take the name of God. Lord, I offer this to you. During the drive, if you just remember once or twice mentally, yes, I'm doing this as a worship of the Lord. After it is finished, Sri Ramakrishna Arpanamastu, we, we do that. Whatever work it is, we offer it to the Lord. Then start the next one. The beginning of the work, at the end of the work, in the middle, if you can remember. So, hold on to God with one hand, hold on to work with the other, do the work with the other. And when the work is finished, hold on to God, God with both hands. So this is one and two, especially number two. But this is for people who hold on to God with both hands, all the time. 
But that means the person who actually feels the presence of God. Overwhelmingly, God alone is real to me. The other thing recedes to the background. Uh, how will such a person do work? Do you know how God does work for such a person? Is it very nice? Very nice means what? Then in the condition is that you hold on to God and God alone, not samsara. There are instances of advanced spiritual seekers, devotees. The, I think Ram Prasad, he used to write his songs all the time and you're supposed to do accounts and his boss um, caught him that you're not finishing your accounts. And then he would find that his accounts are being done. Who does it? Who knows? Divine Mother did his accounts for him. But that means you have to hold on to the Divine Mother with both hands. Say, oh, that's good. Then Divine Mother will do my taxes for me. <laughs> I, I will not. But then are you completely holding on to God with both hands? <laughs> so total surrender to God is necessary. Sri Krishna says, for such a devotee, only for such a devotee, in the Gita he says, Yoga Kshema Vaham Myaham. Yoga Kshema, what does it mean? What does yoga mean here? Here yoga means getting what I have not got. And Kshema means protecting what I have already got. That's what a samsari person does. All the good things in life which I have got, I must protect. All the bad things which I have managed to keep away, they must be kept away. Whether it is uh, any kind of physical trouble, mental trouble, social trouble, keep it away. All the good things, protect it. And more good things are there in life. Get those. That is samsara. Now if I say, I will think only about God. What will happen to my yoga and kshema? This is a special meaning of yoga. What will happen? Sri Krishna says, I will take care of that. I'll take care of it. If you can hold on to God. It's a very good deal. But it's difficult. When you try it, you will see that though you are convinced of the deal, when we try to do it, our minds are so much flowing into the world that we violate the terms of the deal immediately. And contract null and void. Krishna will say, I will not do it for you. You have violated the terms of the contract. Yoga Kshema Vahamyaham is the motto of in India, Life Insurance Company of India. Yes, they took it from the Gita. From the Bhagavad Gita they have taken. Yoga Kshema Vahamyaham. So Life Insurance says, I will take care of. Insurance, very good idea. I will take care of whatever you need in life. Alright. So that is Prapatti. Very beautiful idea. I think it is a story about Tulsidas, um, one great saint who used to live in a hut and many rich people used to come to him and there were robbers who watched it. That This monk, he lives in a hut but so many rich devotees come to him and they give him gifts so this must be full of costly things and there were many things in the hut. So they decided to rob the hut and then they found they could not enter it because all, each time they approached it at the dead of the night they found these two young, these two youths standing with bows and arrows patrolling the uh, Tulsidas, yes, that's the story. Next in the morning, they, were they couldn't restrain their curiosity. So they went to the say saint and said, forgive us, we wanted to rob you last night, but we couldn't get in. Who are those two wonderful, you know, these luminous beings, and there's a youth who all night were walking back and forth in front of your hut, with armed with bow and arrow, and Tulsidas burst into tears. Yeah, they were Rama and Lakshmana, yeah, that they have come to protect me. And you know what his tears were for? Oh, because of all this nonsense that is there in the, in the hut, all those things. They now have to be protected. And I bothered my beloved Lord. And he immediately said, you take all of them. He told the robbers, you take everything from here. 
So because we are, we are bothering God, for God has promised I will take care of everything. And not only that, he promises, Yoga Kshema Vahamyaham, I will carry what you need, what the devotee needs, I will carry. So the great scholar, I think it's Jagannath Mishra or somebody, it was, he was in Puri, he was writing a commentary to the uh, Mahabharata, entire Mahabharata, including Bhagavad Gita, which is in Mahabharata. He was writing a commentary. When he came to this verse, God says, I carry what my devotee needs. He thought that's a mistake. Why will the Lord carry for the devotee? This is not good. I am the devotee. This is the Lord. Lord will grant. So he changed it. He cut it out. The word of the, <laughs> of the Gita. He cut out the word. So that's scholarship for you. He cut out the word. This has to be changed. This must be wrong. He cut it out. And he wrote, Dadamyaham in Sanskrit, I give, I grant. The Lord says, I grant unto my devotees whatever they need. If their one-pointed devotion is there. Now, he was very poor. In his house, his wife was thinking, there's nothing to cook today, there's no food. Suddenly this youth who comes, very beautiful little boy comes with a lot of food on his head, on a basket. And he gives uh, it to them. Who are you? Who sent this? Oh, your uh, husband has, uh, sent this food. This is for, for you. And uh, then, he, then she saw a, a long stripe, like somebody has hit him with a cane or something, on his face or on his back. On his back. So who hit you like this? This is terrible. Oh, your, your hu husband did this. And uh, wife was furious. And said, wait, let him come home. Why would he hurt this little innocent child? And look how nicely he has bought all the food for us. So when the scholar returned home hungry and his wife was furious, why did you beat that little boy? So what little boy? It's a little boy who came with all the food for us and look, here's all the food and he disappeared. I couldn't find him. But he had this terrible mark on his back, like a cut. Then he realized that he had cut the word of the Lord like that, like a... Like a so that, that came on the back of uh, the little boy who is none other than Krishna. So anyway... The Lord takes care of you. But takes care does not mean, uh, oh, that means I want to be a millionaire. I won't do any work. I'll just take the name of Krishna and Krishna will give me a million dollars. No. Krishna will take care of what you need that much. That is promised. When uh, Narendranath went on asking, pestering Sri Ramakrishna, he was in dire circumstances. His father had passed away. They had household debts and... Uh, his brothers and sisters were young and he didn't have a job um, what to do and so he finally went helplessly to Sri Ramakrishna and said ask the Divine Mother see whatever you want in the world you have to ask the Divine Mother Brahman is totally useless <laughs> if, if you are poor in the world that's alright poor is same Brahman with poor name and form if you are rich in the world Brahman is also fine with that you are same Brahman with rich name and form Name and form is not, Brahman is not concerned. But the Divine Mother can make a change. If you want a change, that's why everybody like queues up before the temple of the Divine Mother. Shiva temple is sort of formality. <laughs> um, because she is in charge of the household accounts of the universe, the Divine Mother. Shiva doesn't have a penny to his name. So... Um, Sri Ramakrishna said, you go and ask. And uh, Narendranath said to Sri Ramakrishna that, no, 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 
uh, he, she listens to you, you go and ask. Tell, tell her that things may improve for me. And Sri Ramakrishna said, no, you go. Today's a uh, Tuesday, it's a uh, day of the Divine Mother. And I tell you that she will listen to what you ask for. Go and ask for money. So she, he goes there and then he, come, he finds that, that it's a living image. He, it's not just a stone image or something. And he, he comes back, sort of God intoxicated, and then Sri Ramakrishna says, what did you see? I saw this the divine presence. And uh, did you pray? Yes, I prayed for devotion, viveka, vairagya, you know, di- um, the discernment between the eternal and the non-eternal, dispassion for the world, devotion to her. Oh, that's all right, but did you pray for money? No, I forgot. Oh, how foolish. Go back, go back quickly and, and ask for money. And then he went back. Same thing happened again. Third time, Sri Ramakrishna sent him back. There's yet time. Go and ask. Same thing. He asked for devotion. He asked for knowledge, dispassion. Then he understood that this is all your play. He told Sri Ramakrishna. <laughs> Sri Ramakrishna was very happy because he had, the disciple had passed the test. You must do something for me. And then Sri Ramakrishna says, yes, all right. Your family will not lack plain food and clothing. Plain food and clothing. Not Kate Spade collection. <laughs> not Anthony Burden food. <laughs> Just plain food and clothing. That, that much. So Krishna says, I will take care of. Surrender. Prapatti. God takes care of your affairs, your work. The other one, it says Leela. This whole universe, the devotee ultimately sees this universe as a play of God. And I am the friend. God is playing with me in this, in this form. But then remember, even disease and suffering and loneliness and death are also play. I remember, so the trans, you will not take it as suffering. I remember this very touching story. Uh, it's a Russian Orthodox Church story. So this man, he goes to the father in the church and asks, you taught us that praise God in good and evil. So when things are good, I can praise God. But when things are going badly, how do I praise God? It's, it's not easy. So father said, look, I don't know, but in the forest there, there are hermits who stay, anchorites. So there's one who stays there. He's a very good uh, hermit. Go and ask him. He can tell you. So this man goes into the forest and says in a little cell, this emaciated man is sitting there and there are sores on his body and he's obviously he's ill and he's underfed, sitting quietly and praying, but his eyes are shining with an unearthly joy. So this man asks him, I have a question. The father sent me to you to ask you a question. How do I praise God when there is suffering? He said, you know the answer. How do I praise God when there's suffering? How can I thank God when unfortunate things happen to me, sad things happen to me? When suffering, when he gives suffering. And this hermit, he looked up with a sweet smile, he said, but I can't tell you that because God has never given me suffering. You see, that's the answer. Divine play, all is play. I heard this story, it's a real thing which happened in the Himalayas, I've told some of you earlier. There was this monk who used to stay uh, in a cave. See, there the system is you have to go for your food, beg for your food. And there are places, it's not as difficult as it sounds. There are places where monks, you just go there and if you're a monk, they will feed you. So it's as easy as that. Um, 
one day there was a feast, sometimes there are occasional feasts, but feast is not really a feast compared to what you might think a feast is. It's one, one extra laddu, <laughs> that's a feast. Or in the mango season, one mango is a feast. So there's a feast. Have you heard of, um, they are called, uh, they're like pancakes, malpoa. They're like pancakes. So that, that was served that day. That, that's big news, the monastic grapevine, that there was malpoa in that particular place. So afterwards, when we went to the class, the teacher um, told us, the teacher was teaching us, he said, Tum log gaye? Did you all go? And he, we said, yes. Kitna malpoa khaya? How many did you eat? Somebody said one, somebody said two, somebody said three. And then the monk, the teacher said, I don't go, it comes. And he said, your karma will bring to you whatever. If you, if you are obstinate, if you don't put forth the effort, karma is helpless, it has to come to you. And he gave the example like letters which, are, which bear your address. The postman will find out and deliver it to you, even in your cave, he said. <laughs> That's what happens. Similarly, your karma will come to you. If you don't go to that place, somehow food will come to you. So he said, food came to me. Then he told us the story of this monk who lived in a cave, who did not go out begging, but the villagers liked him very much, so every day they would bring him food at a fixed hour, and they would leave it outside the cave. He would come out from the cave and eat. One day the villagers decided to test him, and they did not bring the food at that hour. And they, from a distance they were watching, what does he do? Now, he had this attitude, that God is my friend. I, life is a play with God. And he would call God Mera Yar, my, my buddy. Why don't you go to beg like the rest of us? Other monks would ask. He would say, Mera yaar khilata hai. My friend feeds me. So that day, they waited. And they saw the monk come out at the appointed hour. He looked around. No food. He scratched his head. And maybe stroked his beard. Hmm. And then he went back into the cave. After ten minutes, he came out again and looked. <laughs> no food. And it kept on happening in intervals. Several hours later, before evening, the villagers went up to him and said, So... What happened? Didn't your friend feed you today, your buddy? And he broke out into a dance, singing, Chalo aaj meri yaar ki chali. Chalo aaj meri yaar ki chali. Today the will of my friend was done. It doesn't translate too well into English. Today the will of my friend was done. I'm so happy. What does it mean? All these days I am hungry and I want to eat and my friend, with a capital F, my, the yaar, the buddy, obliges me. He feeds me. He does what I want. Today, I'm hungry. I want to eat. But he decided not to feed me. Today, his will was done, not mine. I'm so happy today. <laughs> today, my will, he didn't fulfill my will. He fulfilled his will. So, chalo aaj meri yaar ki chali. I'm so happy today. That is, that is the attitude. Only that way. Otherwise, everything in life has to be transformed into play. Divine Leela. They... they Gaudiya Vaishnavas, they see everything in life, every event in your life, as the dance of Radha and Krishna. Everything that is going on in life is the dance of Radha and Krishna. So if you, that's another way of divinizing work. So these are the, this is the main, let us say, the, what I've seen most people do, monks and who, those who are not monks, they see work as worship of God. Okay. Now, in the time remaining, we'll do Q&A, and before that, at the end of this book, 
the Swami has given what is called a few practical hints for followers of Karma Yoga. Very important observations. I have selected 20. He has given 35. So, these are very practical suggestions, very practical points. I will read them out, and then we will discuss. All right. One, other than karma yoga, all yogic paths imply spiritual practice in solitude. Karma yoga alone has the power to bring the spiritual ideal directly into the busiest field of life struggles. Very important for today's life, karma yoga. Very relevant. Second, the goal of karma yoga is one's own liberation and the welfare of the world. Do all work with this twofold end in view. Atmano mokshartam jagathitayacha, the motto of the Ramakrishna order. For your own liberation and for the welfare of the world. That is the purpose of karma yoga. For your own enlightenment. Not to make you a million bucks or not to make you famous or not to give, give you awards in life. So it is only for my spiritual realization and bring welfare to the world. Third, do all work as either service to God who dwells in all beings or as a participation in cosmic sacrifice. That is to say, all work must be done either with devotion to God or with knowledge of the self. Either way, the important point is to make karma a means of connecting individual life with universal life. So either based on God or seeing yourself as the Atman, that I'm participating in a universal sacrifice going on here. Number four, look upon all people as potentially divine, but do not mention, mistake potentiality for actuality. God is present in all beings, absolutely true. Do not underrate the reality and the power of evil. Though the one divine dwells in all, the manifestation of the divinity is not the same in all. In the sinner and the saint, God dwells. Yes, but be careful of the sinner. So we have to be careful in dealing with evil-minded people and difficult situations. So he mentions the example of Vyagra Narayan and Mahut Narayan. What is Vyagra Narayan? The story Sri Ramakrishna said, Narayan, the Lord dwells in all. But that does not mean you will embrace the tiger lord. If you embrace God in the form of the tiger, what will happen? The tiger will, go, will also embrace you. <laughs> and that will be the end. And the story of Mahout Narayana. How do I deal with life? So a, a monk learned that God is present in all beings. Then he went out on his daily round for begging in the village for his food. And people shouted, run away, run away. Holy sir, run away from the path. A mad elephant is charging down. And this man thought, this monk thought, that God is, I love, my guru taught me God is present in all beings. So God is present in the elephant. Narayana is present in the elephant. So how can God harm me? There won't be any problem. I should only approach with the right spirit that God is there in the elephant. Even the mahut, you know the man who sits on top of the elephant who couldn't control it, shouted, move away from the path, holy sir. I can't control the elephant. But the man stood calmly. The elephant charged down. I think the elephant couldn't believe its beady little eyes. And it picked up this monk and tossed him into the fields on the side and charged down, ran away. 
This man lost consciousness. They couldn't find him in the ashram. They went out looking for him. Then they brought him back to the ashram and revived him. And when he came to his senses, the guru asked him, What happened? What happened, my child? Sir, you taught me that all is God. Narayan is present in everything. And then I thought Narayan is present in the elephant. And, but Narayan, the elephant, threw me uh, up to the side. He told the whole story. And the guru said, It is true that Narayan is present in the elephant. But... The Mahut Narayan told you to move out. Why didn't you listen to that Mahut Narayan? The one don't, God is present in that also. God spoke through that. Which means all rules of common sense also apply. So be careful. And then number five. Every day we should spend at least half an hour in morning and evening in silent contemplation. The danger of karma yoga is becoming extroverted. Busyness. I remember the first lesson I learned, I was a new, I was a novice, just one or two months into my monastic life. In the evening, after the evening prayers, I went to the office and I was working in the office. And the head of the monastery came and said, what are you doing? I'm working. And he said, go to your room immediately. Sit and meditate there. Or you read something. Or you sleep. But don't come out of your room until the bell for the night meal goes. See, he knows, young man, restless, active, and he's disguising this restlessness in the name of karma yoga. No, he says, even if you go and sit in your room or even if you doze in your room, literally doesn't mean that you have to sleep, but you will not come out. Learn the value of pulling back from the world. And this is especially important for karma yoga. Karma yoga is busyness. Busyness is not spirituality. Number six. One of the tests of progress in karma yoga is the attainment of purity of mind. Another test is reduction of stress and strain. Purity of mind, stress and strain. If instead of making the mind purer and freeing it from tension, work makes it more and more impure or increases mental tension, there must be something wrong with the work, way work is being done. Way means your attitude. Number seven. See, maturity will bring you to it. I was in Harvard the last three days, and the, most of the people in that batch, they are young people. And it's something awesome for them to be at Harvard. They're thrilled, they're worried, they have a lot of expectations, a lot of anxieties, all of that is there. They're delighted, scared, uh, proud to be there, apprehensive. More than once they came and said, how can you be so relaxed? And you seem to be fairly... Uh, I'm happy to be there. And, and I like it. Everything is nice. But also, I have no particular expectation from it or um, nothing really tied up. Yeah. And you don't have to be a monk to have that. To have, if you are a monk, it, it comes very easily. Just maturity. One lady who is a little older than the others, she has kids, and uh, she has come back to college, and so she is in the same batch. She was saying... That um, life has a kind of dream-like quality after some time. So many things have happened in life. If you think about your childhood now, if you think about the places you lived in, especially many of people here are immigrants, right here in this. So you have lived in different lands, vastly different cultures and places. If you look back upon it now, doesn't it have a dream-like, story-like quality? Mm. Especially as you get more mature. 
you have a family or children or husband and wife and different jobs, different cities, different experiences. When you begin to look back just with that maturity, life does take on a dream-like, story-like quality. Then, number seven, in Karma Yoga, what matters is not what we do, but how we do it. In Karma Yoga, there is no distinction between lower and higher work, between secular and sacred work. All work is sacred. As the Bengali saying goes, from mending shoes to chanting the chandi. Juto shelai take a chandi part. There's a Bengali saying, from mending your shoes to chanting the, the sacred text, chandi. All of it is spiritual. You can spiritualize all work. Unless it's openly immoral or bad, every work can be spiritualized, including eating, talking, walking, everything can be spiritualized. Then he says, Number eight, choose the type of work that is in harmony with your temperament. So resistance will be less. If you have no freedom, many people have no freedom. If you have no freedom to choose your work, try to make whatever work you are asked to do meaningful to you. That is somehow connected to God, spirituality. Number nine, make your outer life an expression of your inner life. Let your whole life be an undivided consecration to the ideal. So not just meditation when I am, that's spiritual, and the rest of it I have to work in the office. That's so boring and awful. No. What you do as worship in your meditation room, that is worship in the office. That is worship in the community, in the family. All of life becomes worship. And it can be done. It can be done. Number 18. Whatever you may do, do it well. Be efficient in work. Avoid sloppiness, bungling, and waste of time. These are signs of tamas and rajas. So karma yoga demands sattva, sattvic mind. Number 11. Always prefer collective welfare to self-interest. Karma yoga will always prefer collective welfare to self-interest. In the name of service, do not exploit other people, especially the poor. Unless one has a spiritual goal in mind, very soon social work also becomes selfish work. I've heard again and again, well-known social workers in India running NGOs, non-government organizations, what we call in this country non-profits, well-known people. But I've heard from people in their organization, they'll say, sir or madam, you know, early days we used to see that he or she used to come to the field. But nowadays, what is sir and madam interested in? Going from seminar to seminar, collecting awards and, you know, that becomes that. I am famous. I should be rewarded for my great work which I have done. Number 12. Never do anything against your conscience. Do not do anything that lowers your self-respect. Have high self-respect without being egoistic. Karma Yogi. Number 13. Make service a way of life. Do service not as a duty, but as a natural way of life. Service calls for sacrifice. Always be ready for sacrifice. This idea was... Um, you've heard of servant leadership? Robert Greenleaf. He popularized it. He has a whole foundation for servant leadership. He says that our ideals should be servantship, service. 
And when you get a position of leadership, you use that for service. But when you are not in a position of leadership, you still go on serving. Because my primary identity is I am here to serve. What can I do for you? People make this mistake that my job does not allow me to do any service or karma yoga. No, no. There are people around you. You can at least be nice to them. Make an effort. So servantship flows into leadership. And if leadership comes very good, and once it goes away, again, servantship remains continuous. You don't wait. I will get the opportunity, the power, the resources. Uh, somebody said um, that there's this person, Vinayak. He runs an orphanage with more than 1,000 kids. A very big organization on the outskirts of Calcutta. He's got the Indian President's Award for Child Welfare and all of that. Somebody asked him, how did you get this idea? How did you get this idea? And his answer was very perceptive. He said, it did not begin with an idea, it began with a feeling. I felt that children are suffering, I must immediately do something. What is the idea? How funds will come? What should I do? What will be the organizational structure? What will be the legal backing? All that comes later. Once uh, some young men, enthusiastic, they came and said, we want to do this thing. But there are a lot of problems. Uh, it has to be incorporated. There are legal problems. And I said, have you started? First, you're starting with putting the card before the horse, drawing up the charter and the bylaws. <laughs> what have you actually done in society? Have you benefited one child, one homeless person yet? I remember, practical lesson. There was a homeless person sick on the pavement outside the ashram. We were new brahmacharis, we noticed. And um, we were feeling bad, we didn't know what to do about it. Then one monk came along and said, what, what's going on? He said, there's this person who's, who's being sick on the pavement, is homeless and is maybe mentally ill or something. And very poor, obviously. Old man. And the monk told us, what is this? This is sitting and commiserating. Get together, get one or two other brahmacharis, young men, and that was late in the night. Go there, clean him up, feed him, talk to him, find out about him, take him to the nearest hospital. Do it, let me see. And we did it. We immediately got to, swung into action, and the man was so happy, he couldn't believe his... <laughs> uh, he didn't have his wits about him, but that much he understood, that people were being kind to him. So... Here he says, make service a way of life. Number 14. Karma yoga is not necessarily a technique for attaining success in worldly life. I have done a lot of service. Why am I not being recognized? Was that your purpose? I did so much good to the world. And uh, one person who started a non-profit, a professor told him, we were all doing our MBA. You are not going into a corporate life, you are starting a non-profit. Very good. Everybody is praising you. 25 years down the line, maybe you, the non-profit will do well, maybe it will not do well. One thing is guaranteed. All your batchmates will be rich and successful, spread all over the world. At that time, you should not think, why am I not rich? You must not think that. So this is a lifelong commitment. Remember, karma yoga is spiritual. It's not meant to make you a millionaire or even get you the Nobel Prize or something like that. It may happen, may not happen, but that's not the point. That same Vinayak, I was talking about him, somebody asked him, how do you define success? He says there are 
external and intrinsic and extrinsic parameters of success. The intrinsic parameter is, I know this is the right thing to do. There are these children who are suffering, successfully or unsuccessfully, I must struggle to help them. And yes, there's extrinsic parameter. I start, he started with three kids, he pulled out of the pavement and just straight away he went and did it. He didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. He didn't know where he was going to stay. He started like that. And you start doing that, three kids, 30 kids, that's how he progressed. 100, 300, 500, 1000. And he says, this is good as it goes on and we are doing better and better and this is success. True, this is also this is definitely extrinsic success. But it could be, and there are so many non-profits who do not do so well. You start with 20 kids and it's 20 kids. It could have happened. But even then I would consider myself a success because I have that intrinsic idea that this is the right thing to do. I failed outside, doesn't matter, but I'm doing the right thing. So, a karma yogi, number 15, karma yogi must always maintain equanimity of mind in success and failure, praise and blame. He should remain calm. There must be forbearance, titiksha. 16. Do not blame other people for your troubles or failures in life. The attitude and behavior of other people towards us depends on upon our attitude and behavior towards them. Number 17. In the field of work, one of the main problems is to get along well with one's superiors, with one's equals, and with one's subordinates or juniors. Some people adjust themselves very well with superiors, but find it difficult to adjust with equals and juniors. Whereas some people get along very well with their equals and juniors, but find it difficult to adjust with their superiors. Yeah, always rebel. They're told to do something, no, I won't listen. It's a natural kind of mi mindset. Or the opposite. Whatever they're telling me to do, yes, here's my superior, I will do it. But I'm nasty to everybody else around. Another kind of mindset. You must get along well with everybody. Time, number 18, time management is an important aspect of karma yoga. Karma yogi should do all work at the right time and within the shortest possible time. Reading newspapers, novels, etc., viewing TV programs, chatting, so, and uh, he does not know about the web. So, <laughs> not only cause waste of time, but reduce efficiency and concentration. Sticking to a strict daily routine is a great help in proper time management. Number 19, Always remember Sri Ramakrishna's advice to the Holy Mother. I will translate. In Bengali, Jekhane jamon, shekhane tamon, jakhon jamon, takhon tamon, jake jamon, take tamon. Basically it means, in matters of external dealings, act in accordance to place, time and person. Don't be stubborn. Number 20. Last. Um, in practical life, the real task is to combine work and worship. Um, to carry on all activities as service, offering to the Lord, maintaining your inner contact with the Lord. And so, Sri Ramakrishna gave this advice to Latu Maharaj for all time to come. This is what you, how you lead your life. What a beautiful thing. Uh, I'll explain. I'll give you the original one in Bengali. How do you live your life? Who is telling? Sri Ramakrishna. To whom? Swam, who became Swami Adbhutananda, Latu Maharaj. He was called the miracle of Sri Ramakrishna because he was completely illiterate. Not, un, not just uneducated, completely illiterate and remained so more or less throughout his life. 
And yet he became an enlightened person, a Brahmagyani. And many people came to learn from him. What did he say to Latu Maharaj? Jage joge jage thakbi. As long as you are awake, it must be one of the two. Jage joge. Jaga means yaga or, or sacrifice, service. Or, and, and yoga, internally, externally sacrifice, internally your contact with the divine. It could be mantra japa, it could be prayer, it could be visualization, whatever it is. You are internally connected with God, externally working for as service to the Lord. Ghumer kale take dagbi. Before you fall asleep, call pray intensely to the Lord. Kajer majhe take dhurbi, ar hardam tar shevai lagbi. In the midst of all work, hold on to the Lord, and at all times serve the Lord. So this is what a beautiful advice. He says, lifelong guidance. Before he passed away, he told Latuma, "This is how you live your life. Jage joge jage thakbi. As long as you are awake." You are externally engaged in yajna, the great service, and internally connected with God. Yes. Our hardam tar shebai lagbi. Jage joge jage thakbi. One. Ghumer kale take dagbi. When you fall asleep, before you lose external awareness, intensely call upon God. Kajer majhe take dhurbi. In the midst of all activities of life, hold on to the Lord. And what should be your activity of life? All the time, try to, try to be of service to the Lord. I remember the famous Hanuman Chalisa, which is very popular in North India. Description of Lord Hanu, of Hanuman, his attitude to God. Ram Kaj Karive Ko Atur. Always so eager to do the, do the work of the Lord. Very good. So this is Karma Yoga. Comments, reactions... Questions? Here. I'll come to you. Thank you. Um, the uh, largest pro problem that I could see is the one you have started with, which means forgetfulness of the real nature of the... Uh, of... I forget what I am. Yes. And uh, uh, it would make sense that karma yoga would serve to remove the forgetfulness. And I um, don't see the direct connection. Um, it is quite beautiful what you have said but I don't see uh, how would it I mean the problem is, seems to be the problem of memory or ignorance right yes. basically it's a cumulative process see the problem with for example meditation in every spiritual retreat one common question will be my, my mind wanders when I meditate my mind wanders. I, other thoughts come into the mind, other people. Why does that happen? Because the moment I cut off the world, my mind is left to itself. It's very difficult to be mindful. And mind, other thoughts intrude and my mind wanders. But in karma yoga, that is not so. Because the you're connected to the world. If, you are looking, if you're taking care of an ill person, a, a patient who is sick, 
That patient will make sure your mind is on the job. Only thing is that internally we must have this attitude that the Lord is present in form, in, in form of the patient. The actual work, which is your practice, the seva of treating the patient, that will be done with mindfulness because the patient will make sure that you pay attention. You're teaching a class of fifth graders. You can't say my mind is wandering. You cannot, mind cannot wander. They, they will make sure that you pay attention. Your mind will be held there. The transformation is internal. That all of these people I'm dealing with, the, they are none other than the Lord. And that will go away from time to time. That will disappear. But over time that becomes steadier, slowly. The particularly difficult, that idea that God is present in this form will be very difficult to hold on to. The person is difficult. But over time it comes. I know in our hospital in Banaras, that's the attitude all the monks are supposed to maintain. Once a year, they actually have a worship of the patients, physical worship of the patients. All the, throughout the year, there is worship of the patients with medicine and injections and treatment and bandages. But once a year, it's actually with garlands and incense and food offerings and like you worship a deity. That's to inculcate within the, the doctors and the, the nurses and the monks that we are worshippers. And that's the inculcate the feeling of divinity within the patients. That we are not taking service. As Vivekananda said, let the one who is receiving stand up and receive. That's the one who is offering, kneel down and offer. There was a monk, I never saw him. They used to call him Bon Bihari Baba. Those who saw him in Banaras. He lifelong he practiced that. His real practice was he would dress the wounds of the patients and he would continuously think that God is present. He was a disciple of the Divine Mother, I think. And he had more, more than one occasion, visions of the Divine Mother in, in the patients. And around that area, it was well known that you would want to have the patient's uh, bandages changed by Bon Baba because then he would be cured. And the poor people, they all knew that and they would queue up for They would always ask. They didn't want the doctor, they didn't want the nurse, they wanted the Swami to come and and even in his old age, he had to be wheeled out in a wheelchair. He would go to the hospital and change the bandages and treat the patients. Transformed into... I remember when I joined the order, one of the first things that struck me was, I told a monk, when I go to the temple and meditate, I can think of God. But when I'm in the school and teaching the kids or doing the paperwork or writing letters and all, I can't think of God. And the monk said, how strange. I find that um, when I'm writing a letter, replying to a letter, my mind calms down wonderfully. I thought he was exaggerating, but no, no. It works. Another monk whom we knew as a great meditator, he would spend hours and hours in meditation. And then one day, the monk, the, the head of the monastery, gave him the duty of in the evening after prayers, when it is his meditation time, remember this is a monk who loved meditation, when it is his meditation time, he gave him the duty of supervising the study of the, of the children. The children sit together and study. So you have to walk, walk around and supervise and make sure, give them help, make sure they are not sleeping or whatever. That's his meditation time. We thought he would be upset. One day I was walking with that monk and he said, you know, and I was a novice, you know, I discovered something very interesting. This feeling I get at the best time of my meditation, when my meditation is really deep, that feeling I often, again and again, I keep getting when I'm walking in the midst of all those children doing their work, and I feel God is present in them, I'm serving them. That 
presence of God I feel there. I thought he was exaggerating, but later I realized, no, it's possible. Okay. Best kind. <laughs> Law of karma, yes. uh, punarjanam. Um, this is a not, karma is not really, I think, not mentioned in, in Upanishads. They usually talk about jnana. No, no, it is mentioned karma. See, in the Upanishads, Vedas, Upanishads are part of the Vedas. Vedas have three parts. Karma, Upasana, Jnana. Upanishads are Jnana Pradhana, mostly about Jnana. But there is always, every Upanishad has some mention of karma. As some mention of Upasana. Upasana means meditation. So the Vedas always have three components. Action, meditation, knowledge. Ritual, um, contemplation and philosophy. So the law of karma would be mentioned in the karma portion of Vedas. Yes. Okay. It's not a law of karma, not in this sense, but karma leads to re results. So do good karma, you'll get good results. Do bad karma, you'll get bad results. So this proto prototype of the form of, of what we call the law of karma today, you find in the most ancient part of the Vedas, you find in the Upanishads, you find in the Bhagavad Gita, throughout Vedantic literature, you find it again and again. Thank you. It uh, bothers me to ask you this. Is this all a form of self-hypnosis? If uh, Ramakrishna, a cancer patient, says, I feel no pain, I feel happy, a psychiatrist would say, it's delusional. And uh, you're all teaching us how to... Become deluded. Not so much delusion, it's a form of prolonged self-hypnosis and reconditioning. Mm. Just the opposite. Vedanta insists that we are already hypnotized. So I'm Vivekananda says, this is all a process of de-hypnosis. Remember, Carefully, Sri Ramakrishna does not say, I don't feel pain. He, in the first, he said, I do feel pain. Didn't he say? Yes. There is, it's, it hurts. I cannot eat because of the tumor. And he says, but sir, I see that you are in great bliss. That's also true. This is inappropriate affect. That's called inappropriate affect. He's, he should not be happy. He should not be happy, yes. So this is from the perspective of a very materialistic science, which is you have to be unhappy. Why are you ha uh, ha happy? Is it? Yeah. So that inappropriate effect which you're talking about, that's, patho that's pathological. That, yeah, so that's pathological. Here, Sri Ramakrishna is actually grounded in reality. Our whole, from a Vedantic perspective, our whole problem is we are living a kind of dream life. According to those enlightened people, we are the ones who are away from reality. There are pathologically disturbed people who are away from our reality also. One sign of this is that the pathologically affected person is usually dysfunctional in life. Freud was once asked, Everything you say, every, according to you, everybody seems to be disturbed. If you say you have a problem, then you are mentally disturbed. If you say I have no problem, then you are really disturbed because you are suppressing all the problems. <laughs> so what is normal according to you? And Freud gave a very nice answer. He said, the ability to do one's work and to maintain, and the ability to work and to love, that's a sign of normality. That means if you can maintain your relationships in working order and you can take care of yourself and do your 
fulfill your responsibilities to some extent at least. You're okay, you're fine. So deeply disturbed persons cannot do that usually. That's one sign. Otherwise, why would you call it pathological? If everybody is, if the person is fully functional and also happy, even if the person has cancer, well, what is the problem then? The person is unhappy or having serious problems at some level, you see there's a great discrepancy, the mismatch between reality and that person's perce perceptions and reactions. Then you call it pathological. But in the case of these enlightened people, they seem to be more functional than us. The places where we struggle, they overcome easily. And they are able to inspire and guide millions of us down the ages for centuries and millennia. Look at what Buddha said when he was asked by this young first time, when he was walking from uh, Bodhagaya to Sarnath, before he delivered the first sermon. This little shepherd boy, young man, he asked him, looked at his face and was amazed by the look on his face and said, What are you? Houston Smith says, many people have been asked, who are you? Very few people in history have been asked, what are you? What are you? Are you a god? And the Buddha said, no. Are you an angel? In those, angel, of course, is a Christian term. They would have said Devdut or something like that. A heavenly being. No. Are you a human being? The Buddha said, no. Then what are you? He said, I am the awakened. I am Buddha. Meaning thereby, we are not awakened yet. Yet. We are away from reality. Enlightenment, you will get a distinct, clear perception that you are penetrating through to a deeper level of reality. From which you can fully understand the other person's perspective. But the other person cannot understand you. How do you know that you are at a deeper level or a higher level? Why is the college student at a higher level than the, than the kindergarten student? Because the college student understands everything that the kindergarten student is studying. But the kindergarten, not the other way around. Kindergarten student doesn't understand what the college student is studying. So it encompasses our reality and goes beyond that. How, how do we uh, fit ambition in karma yoga? And ambition and other more, say, selfish desires uh, of the mind and body, even little ones. Hmm. You cannot. The, I, what is the purpose of karma yoga? The purpose of karma yoga is ultimately, it is for enlightenment or God-realization. So I have realized that what, was, what were all my ambitions for till today? Why do we have ambitions? What does ambition lead to? What is the purpose of ambition? To happiness. Happiness. Ultimately it's my own happiness. People are confused. They don't understand this. If you actually probe, there's a nice story there. Somebody said, I love my job. It's really the job which I love working for a big multinational corporation. So he was asked, then do the job, we won't give you the money. You love the job, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> money I must have. Given a choice between the job and the money, which will do? You have to take one, and then I'll take the money. Okay, you take the money, but you can't spend it. No, 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 no. <laughs> I should be able to spend it. I need things for my family. I have to buy the things for my family. All right. You can spend the money for the family, but they won't be your family anymore. It's some, some random family. No, 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 it has to be my family. <laughs> Ultimately, it comes back to me. Uh, my happiness, somewhere. In an enlightened way or unenlightened way, it has to be connected to the self. Now, this is what ambition is for. 
and the enlightened person or wise person, not an enlightened, wise person realizes this way is not making me happy. If I keep on pursuing these ambitions, it will just, same result will come. The definition of insanity is to keep doing the same things and expecting different results. I repeat it again and again, expect different results. No, insanity. So now, here is religion. Vivekananda and others promising you that real deep satisfaction is possible. Um, why not try that? Remember, in one sense you are not abandoning ambition. You are being ambitious in a wiser way. A young man became a monk. His classmates asked him, Why do you want to become a monk? Why do you want, don't you want these things? Whatever is in life. And the young man replied, it's not that I don't want these things. I want everything. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you, that person is there. Yes. Yes, Swamiji. I have a question about introverts who want to do service, but it's difficult for them. Um, you know, it's like they would rather sit in a cave than go out there uh. and interact with people and do service. So how can an introvert person be a good karma yogi? Yes. Um, when is lunch now? 12 or 12.30? 12. 12, so we have gone into lunch time. Introvert, your... Um, nature suits you to, to meditation, for example. Study, meditation, devotion. That will become your primary path. Don't fight against your nature. But Swami Vivekananda always recommended a harmony of the four yogas. Remember, the problem is not with karma yoga. The problem is always with my own mental makeup. So that which my mental makeup has not suited me to, um, that I must, I must try. That will not be easy on me. So there are introverts who do karma. In our order, we have to do karma yoga. We have to do all the yogas. So it's not suited to it. May not be very practical, may not be very efficient also. But it does me good. Often the places where I grow most are the places where uh, I, I lack development. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu